He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Join me the rest of the Munson's. Want to give them a wide berth. He's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. This time we're going to start with James. Yes, yeah, so I think this is coming out after the Super Bowl. So I want to let you know that I already celebrated my Super Bowl as a Jets fan, which means that every team in the AFC East that isn't the Jets has been eliminated from the playoffs. I've been winning a lot recently, watching the Bills and Dolphins suffer and go down in flames. So it's been pretty successful few years as a certified hater. And so I'm glad to see them just fully embarrass themselves on a national level. Hate, 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 hate. You got to find your victories, right, James? That's correct. <laughs> at that time of year. Aubrey. There's a lot going on over here. I feel terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's almost playoffs in basketball season. So we got like just games, it feels like every day. Which, speaking of, milestone moment, met Case. Yeah. Came all the way down here to Lakeland, showed him the town. Yeah. What's the story there? I had my birthday last Thursday and I went to visit my sister in Orlando. Mm. I figured I'd shoot on down to Lakeland and catch up with Aubrey. And it was great. He saw some of the talent we're working with at Santa Fe Catholic High School. Kind of it. Let's just put it this way. Great coaching. Great coaching. Yeah, he saw a really impressive shoot around. <laughs> I was on time. I was on him. We won by like 20 that night in honor of him. It was great. Big win. Oh. And then also less significant, significantly less significant than the last one. I did Sundance Online again this year. Mm -hmm. Nice. So I am dragging right now because I have watched... I think, including prep for this, it's been like 22 movies in three days. Yep. Holy shit. Sundance Online is no joke. It'll trick you into thinking you're good. And then you're like a uh, 7 a.m. film, 9.30 film, 12 p.m. film. Mm -hmm. I love that Sundance does this, man. I really do. I love that they still do it. They don't have to still do it. So it's great. I didn't get to see everything I wanted to see. But if they're going to keep doing it, I'm going to keep supporting it. So they know that I want them to keep doing it. Yeah. Well, let's throw it over to your coaching consultant that you pulled in for your basketball game there at Santa Fe. That's right. I've had a fun run the last couple of weeks. As Aubrey mentioned, I did take a trip to Central Florida. I had three overriding observations, and I think they're pretty accurate. The first thing is, anytime I punched in a location into my GPS, it would automatically say 20 minutes, regardless of mileage. It's like, yeah, two and a half miles, 20 minutes. Yeah, 25 miles, 20 minutes. Speaking of driving, if you weren't on the varsity or junior varsity NASCAR team in high school in Florida, you felt pretty stressed out and rushed driving. A lot of crazy drivers down there. It was very interesting. The final observation I had is because of the geography and the vegetation of central Florida, everywhere I looked, I expected to see an alligator. And I didn't see one of them. It was very unfortunate. You didn't see one gator in central Florida? Oh, no. Nope. I'm looking hard enough. You're the first one of us to meet Aubrey in person. So that's. Yeah. It's like a big deal. I know. It's real. It was certainly a treat. He took me out for a nice burger. We had a good time. That's good. Yeah, it was great. 
Are my three observations pretty close, Aubrey, about the time, the driving, and the gators? Yeah, the time is about right. We don't really experience time in the same way as everyone else does. We kind of just go where we're going. <laughs> we get after it when we drive. That is 100% a fact. We get after it. The gators, you must just not have been around any lakes. But you also went to a Walmart. So depending on where you, what Walmart you went to, you could have seen literally anything in there. That's fair. Including a gator. It was a good trip. Good to hear, man. To be honest, like two days ago, I thought I, we had an extra week of prep for this because my <laughs> life has been so chaotic for the last two and a half weeks. You know, for the first time in 96 episodes, I didn't schedule and release an episode. So shout out to Aubrey for tackling that, Aubrey and Case. And I had a great week in Hawaii. It was wonderful. I did not have a great night last night with my Lions, but it's okay. I'm over it. I'll, I'll move on. Corey over there in Kansas City Chief territory, I'm sure they're having a great time. I thought we were going to start the year Lions Chiefs and end the year with Lions Chiefs, but we had our own uh, destruction to account for. But happy to be back. I watched more Lucy Lou than I thought I had, to be honest. Kyle, how was your experience watching a Detroit Lions game from a bar at 9 a.m. in the morning? That was good. I'll watch all the games from Hawaii anytime. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> We're excited to bring back Corey Wallace. She's still a 12-year-old latchkey kid with Beyond Basic Cable in an adult woman's body. She once set her alarm at 3 a.m. to get up and watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. Please don't tell her parents. It's one of my favorite bios to read, that part right there. Easily. He prefers to date guys who watch at least three movies a week, loves a good deep dive or think piece, and is a fan of this podcast. Apparently, she keeps coming back. She was here previously for the Natasha Leone, still our most listened to episode of all time. Not even close. Aubrey Plaza, Tyler Perry, and Dakota Johnson episode. So this is her fifth appearance on the pod. Uh, welcome back, Corey. Woo! Thank you. I will make a plug that that Tyler Perry episode, if people who are listening to this have not heard it, they need to seek it out because I think it was excellent. I agree. I think it was so good. I love that conversation you guys consistently say it's one of my favorite episodes when people are like oh which one should i listen to I was like tyler perry mm-hmm. yes <laughs> it's awesome i will also say i have a new gig since i was with you guys last and now i am living in a parks and rec episode every day of my life Ooh. i serve as the director of communications for a mid-sized city in the midwest i literally legitimately live in a parks and rec episode every day Talking to you from a new place, but so glad to be back. So who are you? Yeah, yeah as I say, you don't need to identify them by name, but have you been able to a- appropriately cast everybody for that you work with? Yes, I have everybody but an Ann. I have a Jerry. <laughs> I have a Ron. Yes. I have a Chris. Yes. That's phenomenal. Let me know if you need a John Ralphio. <laughs> We're glad to have you back. You're always a riot. I agree. The Tyler Perry episode's one of our like just top to bottom, best, most informative layer peeling episodes we've ever had but they're always great with you so let's let's go make another gem so we are looking at february 8th is today aka in the future and this is a busy day of birthdays i might throw in some dead people at the end just to really spice up the world and get case and james excited for (laughs) criticizing me there are some good candidates for that but i'm going to stick to three main ones today all right, first and foremost, we have Seth Green, former Munson, Ooh. best known for Austin Powers, Robot Chicken, Without a Paddle, Sex Drive, Can't Hardly Wait, and Howard Duck. How old is Seth Green? 45. 50. 49. I'm going to guess 43. One of you is 100% correct, and that person is Aubrey McKay because he's turning 50. 
on the dot. For real? Guys. He's just got the baby face. My strategy is foolproof. They're always older than you think. You know, that's that's the key. Every time. White people. Yeah. To be specific. Unproblematic white folks. <laughs> <laughs> Second up is Mary Steenbergen. Best known for Step Brothers, Elf, Last Man on Earth, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, and Powder. How old is Mary Steenbergen? Yes. I said powder. I also think she has an Oscar, right? I think so. Maybe. I we haven't covered her. I can't I can't speak to that. I know for sure Seth Green doesn't. <laughs> 53. It's very kind of you. Oh, we know what we're doing here. Yeah, he's it's very kind of you. That's very polite. 30. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it's disrespectful to say best known for Step Brothers when she's won an Oscar as best supporting actress, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I love Step Brothers, one of my favorites. I'm saying she's 68. Three very different guesses. Well, they're clearly wrong. Corey, where are you going? I'm going to say she's 73 years old. She's in an underrated pageant film called Miss Firecracker. Oh, yeah. With mm. Holly Hunter. That's wonderful. Yep. It's very complimentary of you. Unfortunately, you're wrong with her her age. But she is turning 71, so James with the 68 gets that right because he is under on that. Price is right, baby. So close. I feel good about mine. Same. It's still hot as ever. All right, last one for today is legendary composer John Williams has a birthday. He's got five different Oscars. He's been nominated an ungodly amount of times for his composing work, including Jurassic Park, Star Wars, Superman, the Home Alone films, Lincoln, and the list could go on literally forever. How old is John? Legend. 85. Confirmed he's alive, Kyle? I'm pretty sure John Williams is still alive. The dead people are coming. He's, he's not one of them. 91. Yeah, I have no fucking idea. Um. <laughs> <laughs> You're not up on your composers, James? Come on. No, but I mean, he's, he's great. Don't get me wrong. I just, I couldn't <laughs> pick him out of a lineup. And The GIF didn't help you? I wouldn't recognize him if he introduced himself. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, that's tough. He'd be like, hey, Case, I'm John Williams. I go, hey, man, where do I know you from? Even with that name, you're like, oh, that sounds familiar. Uh, but it's a generic name. 83. 82. 82. Aubrey wins. He's turned 92 years old. February 8th. Yeah, the man is old. Legend. Other birthdays for February 8th, we didn't guess. Nick Nolte. Talk about aging well. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Not well at all. Creed Bratton from The Office. Everyone loves Creed. Oh, yeah. Double down on my 91 guess. Yeah. <laughs> and then some big names. John Grisham, Jack Lemmon, and James Dean. So some other Damn. Some other big February 8th birthdays. Oh, wow. Uh, happy uh, Earth birthday and death birthday to all those people. Episode 96, we had five actors we threw on the wheel. We had James McAvoy, Eliza Dushku, Thomas Jane, Ewan Bremner, but it didn't matter because the wheel selected Lucy Liu, who has 114 acting credits on her resume, including lots of television, and she's also got eight director credits and seven producer credits, so she's done quite a bit on camera and behind the camera. Before we get into the nitty-gritty details, we always start with a little actor trivia to see if James can stump us Fast and Furious style. Corey, you're part of the initiated, so you know this game. But for those of you who might be new listening to us at home, specifically Aubrey students, if you guys are listening for some salt burn spoilers, the game we play here is I'm going to read off three facts. Two of them are going to be true about Lucy Liu. One of them is not going to be true about Lucy Liu, but is going to be true about one of the many illustrious cast members of the Fast and Furious franchise. People here are going to have to guess which one that is. Fact number one. 
has the distinguished honor of being one of two people mentioned in the first song on Apple's iTunes to reach 1 million downloads ever. Fact number two is the second Asian American woman to be honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and the first to ever host Saturday Night Live. Fact number three. While studying in college, she worked as an intern on Wall Street where she was discovered by a modeling agent and soon became the first Asian American featured in advertisements for Versace and Ralph Lauren's polo. Mm, these are good ones. I will go with fact number two is the lie. The first woman to host SNL and second Asian American woman to do. I don't remember the other thing because everybody knows that's Kiko Kitagawa who played Raiko, at least one of the Fast and Furious films. And all of you have heard that name before. And I'm just reminding you who that is. You're welcome. How could we forget? Very familiar. You're welcome. Can't wait for that episode. The fact that you guys didn't know she was the first person to host SNL is disrespectful to her legacy, and you should do some thinking about that. Well, unfortunately, I already know who the lie's about, so it can't be number two because it's Helen Mirren. So I'm going to go that number one was the lie because Helen Mirren is Lucy Liu's co-star. In Shazam, Fury of the Gods. Spoken like a guy who did the review for the episode. I'll tell you what. Well, the answer is obviously number one, because we all know that that's MC Jen. I thought you were going Luda. No, no. You think Luda could get to number one, please? No, that's obviously Jen is getting that. It's got to be. This has got to be the one. I'm going to go with two. I think two is the lie. Okay. Fact number one, Outcast's 2003 hit, Hey Ya!, First song ever to reach a million downloads on Apple's iTunes, which was new at the time. People forget at the very end there, it specifically name drops all the Beyonce's and Lucy Lou's. 103,000 said he included it because he was watching the music video Independent Women Part 1, which was written for Charlie's Angels and was starring Lucy Lou. It was playing on TV when he wrote Hey Ya, and he's like, yeah, I thought it was a way to be like independent women. Little did he know that that was going to be one of the biggest hits that year, and she's forever iconically idolized in that song. Fact number two, second Asian American woman to be honored with a Hollywood Walk of Fame star, as well as hosts the first ever host Saturday Night Live. That's true. In 2000, after she starred in Charlie's Angels, she's the first Asian woman to ever host an episode of Saturday Night Live. Another Asian woman didn't host until Aquafina hosted 18 years later. Wow. Big span there. Yeah. She's also the second Asian American woman to ever get a Hollywood Walk of Fame star. Uh, the first being Anime Wong, and their stars are actually adjacent from one another. And fact number three, which I was shocked no one guessed, but it could make sense because she's absolutely beautiful. While studying in college, she worked as an intern for Wall Street, where she was discovered by a modeling agent, and then soon became the first Asian American featured in advertisements for Versace and Ralph Lauren's polo. At age 19, she was actually discovered on a subway, but this is not about her. She ended up appearing in a commercial as a result about that. This modeling was actually uh, Ricky Yoon, who if you've seen him, you're like, I've seen that handsome man before. Mm -hmm. Prior to becoming an actor, worked as a Wall Street day trader, became the first Asian-American featured in Versace and Ralph Lauren's polo, but most famously is known as Johnny Tran, the ruthless leader of the Vietnamese gang in the original Fast and Furious. Those are phenomenal. I love that. I don't think you've used him for a fact before, James. I think that's a new one for us. Honestly, at this point, if I repeated him, I I don't even know anymore. Like... <laughs> There's going to be a certain point where I read one and you're like, no, because I've heard that fact about Jason Momoa three times and I know that's him. I'm like, ah, damn. Okay. A hundred episodes in, this is what happens. Yeah. Okay. Appreciate it, James. Absolutely. Pace, what about her snapshot in box office history? I'm going to start out with the low-hanging fruit, pun intended, and we're going to talk about some losses. Let's start out with the fact that on the complete 
box office metrics I have, I have her down for 17 movies that lost money and only 15 that earned money. I've got three prominent losses I'd like to talk about, and I'm going to need some help from the crowd here. First one was Trouble with the Bliss, which had a $1 million budget, but was only able to capture thirteen grand worldwide in the box office. Any ideas on what we could do with thirteen grand, James? So you can't do a lot. You actually owe a lot of people money at that point. Uh, I would not be buying new cars if I was almost <laughs> down a million dollars. Well, she still—they still got thirteen grand in the box office. They just lost nine hundred eighty-seven grand. <laughs> the cast on that film is also great, and that was a huge studio loss. That's almost, it's pretty embarrassing if you think about the people that are in it. A movie I know some people are excited to talk about. Watching Detectives had a $2 million budget and world grossed fifteen grand. Very exciting. And finally, Molly with a $21 million budget, world grossed eighteen grand. Whoa. Lost over $20 million, which is unfortunately not her largest box office loss with that 18 grand they could buy a 2017 mazda 6 so used with a couple miles on it but it's a nice car it's a dependable sedan oh mazda 6s are nice yeah get maroon with tinted windows yep I, i'm here for that it's got about seventy thousand miles on it Ooh, reasonable offline i'm gonna get that number from you <laughs> along the lines of some high points for her First one's not necessarily a high point, but it was a little surprising. Her IMDb rating shot up. It was at 1252, and it shot up over 400 points recently because of a new film that she has out called Presence. And uh, that's a Steven Soderbergh film that recently came out, and I believe Aubrey's that offline. It was with the Sundance. The other one that is actually pretty impressive, it is that... She is our sixth ranked performer in percentage of box office that came from international gross. Mm. And I was curious on that because I'm like, I feel like that, you know, who's going to beat her? And she's in good company because we're going to talk about people like Christoph Waltz, Emma Thompson, Ken Watanabe, and Alicia Vikander. So... She's in with some heavyweights when it comes to uh, international gross percentage. But specifically speaking for her, he is 29th in average budget, which is impressive. She ranks 32nd in total box office, 40th in star meter ranking, which at the last minute really shot up for her, which helps her. Critic ranking, she's 44th. Fan ranking, she's 47th with a 56.8 and 59.8 respectively. And she ranks 87th and 62nd in two different box office metrics. So with all of that put together, she comes out ranking 56th out of 96. A bit higher than I thought it would be, to be honest. Yeah, I feel the same way. Probably the most surprising thing on that, her critic score was so high. Yeah. I thought her critic score would be a little bit lower. I imagine that's the animated films, though. Yeah. Bullying that. The Kung Fu Pandas, mm -hmm. probably pulling that up a little bit. I think it goes to show her pop culture. Yep. Some of that there. When it's all said and done, 56 out of 96, we'll see how the Munson meter compares. It's always Case's favorite metric when it's all said and done. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the early days. First major role we're going to talk about is 99. So all the stuff before that, and I'll throw out a bunch of pieces. James, I'm sure we'll pepper in some things. And 
Uh, she was born in Queens in 1968. She learned Mandarin at the age of five. And uh, in her family there, she, she ended up adopting her, her middle name of Alexis in high school, which I know if you look at early credits, it won't say Lucy Lou. It'll say Lucy Alexis Lou as her credit name. Mm-hmm. Started at NYU, higher education days, and then she transferred to University of Michigan. So, you know, she's going to get the Wolverine bump. Oh, come on. Yeah, got to do it. It is official. The wheel does not decide. <laughs> Another thing that's cool. She's a, she's a proud uh, Greek person. She's a Kyo. Three of us on the on the pod here uh, worked in that world and volunteered in that world. So I always think it's interesting to point those folks out when we stumble across them. Little baby owl. That's right. A million coyotes out there. Baby hootie. <laughs> Baby hootie. That's right. Yep. To James' point earlier, she was discovered at 19 on the subway by an agent, and he recruited her to do a commercial. And that's kind of where she got her start. Her first like, acting role was while she was in college. She was the lead in Alice in Wonderland, so doing some stage work. Really, her stage work starts and ends with college. I couldn't really find anything else where she did theater work the rest of her career, unless somebody wants to tell me I'm wrong. But I think that's really, you know, like anybody else, you, you learn on the stage and then you take it behind the camera. But a little piece of like personal challenge, you know, she in 91, she actually had a scare with breast cancer and had surgery because of it very early in her life, which I can't imagine that was a whole lot of fun to have to deal with. 23 years old. Not great. But her, that's really when her acting career started. And not unlike many other actors, it was a lot of TV, small TV spots between 91 and 98. So we're talking 15 different TV spots. During that time, on some pretty big shows, I mean, Beverly Hills 90210, Home Improvement, Hercules, ER, Nash Bridges, one of my personal favorites, X-Files, NYPD Blue. I watched some of these. I felt bad, not because she is not a talented actress, but because she was typecast very early on to play some really stereotypical Asian accent roles in... ER is by far the worst of the ones I watched. Uh, the X-Files one isn't great either, but the ER, you could just tell she, they're like, oh, she's one of like three Asian American actresses uh, in this space. Let's just put her in here and make her talk like she's wasn't born and raised in the States. It's kind of disappointing, to be honest. It's more a reflection on this, the industry than her, in my mind. ER is, like, you go back and watch that show for as successful as it is, it is a wild show. There are some shit that happens on that show and you're like, how did they get away with doing this at the time uh, this guy I follow on twitter did like a live rewatch of the scene and he would highlight like the craziest shit that happens and racist character tropes is low on the shock value of things that you will see in er i know you're always really good at like who are they represented by who's their agent but like what are your thoughts on that i look at her credits initially and i think this is a person who's grinding who went to the new york studio school after leaving michigan If you're a theater nerd, you know that Michigan is an outstanding theater program. I'm talking about stage theater, musical theater specifically. So the fact that she got cast there is in anything is unbelievable because you've got the heaviest of heavy hitters who have a pipeline. It's a joke. You've got a pipeline straight to Broadway. Okay. So this was not her goal initially when she went to Michigan. In fact, she transferred from NYU and went to Michigan and studied like Chinese languages or Asian studies or something like that. So when I think about like what she initially was thinking she was going to do, she was just on that grind. She probably was like, please get me an agent. I just want to get seen. And in those open calls, like you are just a typecast. Mm -hmm. You're a stereotype walking, talking, breathing. 
can you work successfully? My gut is that her initial representation was like, let's just get you booked. Mm. Let's get your rent paid. Let's get you some credits. I know you're going to mention this, but later she gets booked in a show that ended up being her rocket ship mm-hmm. into features. Allie McBeal was the first introduction into being a character actress as opposed to a stereotype. Mm-hmm. And that probably changed everything for her. Hopefully, I think initially she was on the grind and just working, just working, working, working as much as she could. Yep, paying the bills. One TV spot here, two episode spot there. Probably not being too picky. Not being picky at all. Want credits. These are all big shows. So like that's great places to get your face out. Yeah. And there's more that are from her. But those are the big names during that time. And there are others like shows you probably never heard of either. And that's okay. We don't have time to talk about all 114. One of the things that really frustrated me getting ready for this episode, anytime I would punch in Lucy Liu movies, like the first two listed would definitely be Lucy Liu. And then it'd be like, hey, why not watch this? And it was another Asian performer. And usually like anybody else that we we do that with. Lucemi. Lucemi had a ton. Right there. Yeah. I wasn't sitting there going, oh, this is just because it's a goofy looking middle-aged white dude. It was different people he acted with. And for some reason, on any search I did with her, it never it never defaulted to people that she performs with. I just thought that was very intriguing and frustrating. She had two. So Ally McBeal ran from 98 to 2002. The Willennium was right in the middle there for you, Case. You're welcome. There you go. Thank you. Yep. 73 episodes of that show. And we'll return to the character here in a second. But I think to your point, she's in two shows early on. Recurring characters, that and Pearl from 96 to 97, or she was in 22 episodes of that. Two shows you can't find anywhere. Mm-hmm. They're not streaming on anything. Because <laughs> we were going to do Ally McBeal for first major role, because it makes sense. It's her, that's her big first role that took her out of being typecast. Unless you've got the DVD or VHS box set, you're not watching that show anywhere, unfortunately. So we couldn't subject Aubrey to that pain this time around. Do you think that's because of music licensing? Probably. I hope. I hope it's not because it's the first show that had like a empowered female lead. I hope that's not why they can't find it anywhere. But I would bet it's music licensing. There's a show that I'm obsessed with that a lot of women my age are obsessed with called American Dreams, Brittany Snow. Mm-hmm. And it was her breakout role. And the music licensing is a nightmare. It's a lot really? of American bandstand. Yeah. yeah, it's the story of a girl who gets on American bandstand. Anyway, I won't belabor it, but I would bet... Ally McBeal can't be streamed because of the licensing. It's so expensive. I wonder Pearl's the same way. It's the only thing that makes sense in terms of Ally McBeal. Yeah. Because when I told my mom that we were doing Lucy Liu, she goes, oh, I love Ally McBeal. <laughs> a huge show. And, and then proceeded to talk to me about Ally McBeal for a while. Yeah. I remember it being a big deal, even though I was like, you know, pretty young at the time. I remember it being a big deal. So when I, we couldn't find it anywhere, the music licensing is the only thing that makes sense. Because in the state that we're in with streaming, where all of these studios are trying to kind of basically arm themselves with content that people will watch, Alan McBeal, I feel like, would would kill on a streamer. Yeah, like would crush, find a new life. And so if it's not somewhere, it's got to be music license. That's such a great point. I didn't even think about that. Agreed. I mean, it's still consistently championed as an important TV series because of the impact that the female characters had on its success. And just so we're also on the same page, she got an Emmy nom and four SAG noms for her role in that show. So it wasn't just like I got cast in it, like 
she crushed in that role crushed. as well, and I'm sad we couldn't watch it. Other than a few YouTube clips you can find. I was excited to watch it. Me too. How would we describe her character of Lin Wu? Like, sassy? Kind of an asshole from everything I read and saw? There's a lot of scholarship on the fact that she was an unyielding Asian woman. Mm-hmm. And that she was unfeeling. And there's a lot of scholarship and conversation about how either damaging that is or it created a lot of like cultural conversation which that's the cool thing about Ally McBeal I mean it was appointment television yeah it is the thing that welcomed Robert Downey Jr. back into performing that show did a lot of things that I think were really new and haven't been replicated successfully since but yeah there's a lot of conversation about how she's this unyielding unfeeling Asian woman mm. and that the other men in the show, specifically one character, hypersexualize her as a person. From what I remember, it's phenomenal television. Great, great, great. I'm, I'm not shocked at all that she was nominated multiple times, specifically for the SAG Award. That makes absolute sense to me. To some degree, isn't that effective writing? If you can make people have a conversation. Yes. Something to be said. And the tiger lady with a heart, the thoughtful tiger lady stereotype, and the way she interpreted it clearly had nuance. Yep. I mean, you could say that George Clooney's character in ER was just a hottie with a body. Still is. We did more with that character then. Just the Caesar haircut. That scene she's in in ER, she's with George Clooney. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ultimately, we're looking at like the character she played was like a significant pop culture and cultural moment, which is, that says something. For your first major role early on like that. The other movie in there, which is a big one, she played the former girlfriend in Jerry Maguire in 96, smaller role. That's a film we've never talked about in 96 episodes. Again, still blows me away hmm. and shocks me. I think that movie is so overrated. That's another episode, though. Bring me back to talk. <laughs> oh. We got you for the Cuba Good episode? Oh, here. now I got to rewatch it. I would not disagree with you, Corey. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan. Wasn't Dan, I'm not now. All right, so the, because we couldn't find Allie McBeal, we went to a different role to what we're going to call first major role, and that is her role as Pearl in Payback from 1999, and Aubrey has it. Which is great, because there's nothing problematic about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a 1999 movie, stars Mel Gibson, a bunch of other people that are really good in the 90s, most notably for me, was Bill Duke. I love that guy. Uh, this is, I'm going to butcher this dude's name, Brian Hegeland, something like that. That's the director. The only reason why I'm mentioning this is because his credits are fascinating to me. So he has this, he has a Knight's Tale in 2001. He's got 42. Wow. And then Legend, the Tom Hardy movie from 2015. Yeah. I don't understand this person's career. I will say I don't like all of those movies. And I did not like this movie in which Mel Gibson was the member of a successful heist who was turned on by his partner and his wife and shot and left for dead. And then he recovers somehow and seeks vengeance, which I'm here for a revenge story. I'm here for that. I'm here for 1999 action. I'm here for 1999 action with Mel Gibson. This movie was the worst of all of those things. None of this movie makes sense. And, and, and not in the way that like a 90s movie cannot make sense and it'd be charming. This doesn't make sense in a way that's just like, why am I watching this? Very uninteresting. But Mel Gibson is, uh, we'll, we'll say stiff and not very interesting, which was surprising and kind of a letdown. The action was odd and not good. It's just kind of a bad movie. Lucy Liu 
is a dominatrix <laughs> and she's attached to like a great crime family yeah. from, I don't want to guess where, but I don't know if they said it, but it's stereotypical. And she finds herself kind of in the middle for reasons I can't really explain. I didn't enjoy her performance in this, but I was mostly confused as to why anything in this movie exists. So I chalk it up to that. I don't place my disappointment in this film at her feet. The one saving grace, Bill Duke is great. Watch if the takeaway from this is anything, watch a movie with Bill Duke in it because he's just wonderful. What did she say when she's about to light up their car with bullets with her four little henchmen? She says like zippidoo or something like that. I forget exactly. Oh yeah, she does say something stupid like it's that. Something stupid. It's hard for me to remember with so many great lines from this movie. I I I told you guys before. When I don't like a movie for this podcast, I try not to turn it off, but I just stop paying attention. 100% happened here. As soon as I saw what she was doing, and I was like, what? I stopped paying attention. Different from Aubrey, that's when I clicked in. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. Uh, her performance was understated and tasteful, is how I would describe it. <laughs> so, maybe not the movie she's most proud of years later, I imagine. Yeah, I feel like this was early on in those like, blunt force fight type movies like Born Identity and everybody was trying to do what Born Identity was trying to do. <laughs> Didn't land very often. <laughs> it's so thoroughly boring from the jump. I think I yeah. made it about 45 minutes and I gave up. I don't even think I saw Lucy Liu. <laughs> she hadn't been introduced by the time I bailed on the movie. You probably didn't. I don't think that the origin of this movie was as understandable as trying to copy something like that. This felt like a noir. Oh, okay. Like a, like a modern noir. It was so weird. Aubrey, anything else you want to add? Yeah, don't watch it. <laughs> Bingo. No, I'm done. Well, it's a good thing is she, she went on Next World to really do something with dignity, and that's called The Mating Habits of the Earthbound Human. She played the female's friend. I'm kidding, clearly. <laughs> I did want to watch this. It was streaming free when I researched it many moons ago. And then by the time we started prepping, it was no longer free anywhere. And I wasn't going to pay for this because I, I, I read the synopsis and I was like, this film seems like an absolute train wreck of a project. And I was like, I have to watch it, but I also am not going to pay for it. So I can't, I can't give you guys any intel. I'm sorry. Mackenzie Aston is in this film and he's the son of John Aston and Patty Duke. And Mackenzie Aston is brothers with Sean Aston, right? From, Hobbit and all that's Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Mackenzie was, I think, trying to get out of his teen idol phase when he got this gig. I'm just going to be honest. This is where I was looking at her, all of the roles that she was in. And it honestly makes me kind of angry mm -hmm. on her behalf. Yep. Because you look at this stuff and you see that they're vehicles for other people. They're trying to be something that has already been done, totally derivative. They are ill-thought-out, ill-conceived concept films. They do not deliver. And yet she wants to keep working. Her representation is probably saying, we just got to keep you booked and busy, girl. Like, let's just keep you booked and busy. And it makes me so mad. It makes me so angry. Mm -hmm. Because there was other paths for her. Maybe, maybe I'm saying that from a position of like the cheap seats in Kansas. <laughs> but like you look at her, look at her like listing, it's anger making. Mm -hmm. It's like, what? 
what were your people thinking? Lost opportunity to take on like good projects. So many missed opportunities. And you know, they say you get on a film set and you don't know if it's going to be a flop or like the most incredible concept movie ever created. But you had to know in looking at some of these pitches that they were garbage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it just makes me just sad on her behalf. Yep. That's the theme for me of this whole episode is like, (laughs) we got to get you something better. We got to get you booked in something better. Let's go to 2000 Shanghai Noon. She played Princess Pepe alongside Owen Wilson. Basically, uh, Owen Wilson, Jackie Chan, buddy comedy action flick. And Corey is shaking her head. (laughs) This is not a veer away from her description, although this is probably a better project. The only thing I will say positively about her role in this, she's the person that saves the day, really. I do like that. But again, she's just... She's typecast. Yeah, she's just side fodder for Owen Wilson and Jackie Chan. Early in her career, yeah, but at this point, I think she's past that. I mean, that was one of the first things I recognized when I watched this movie. Like, holy shit, that's Lucy Liu. Mm -hmm. And she rocks in this movie, but she's still a side plot. As somebody who didn't really watch Ally McBeal at... 10 years old, this was the first movie I really saw Lucy Liu in. And you and Owen Wilson fell in love with her. I mean, she's gorgeous. How could you not? <laughs> she is. I don't mind this movie. It blends into everything Corey was saying, so I'm not going to dispute any of that. I just don't mind the movie. But also, no, I, don't either. I think the buddy comedy stuff works for the most part, and I think Jackie Chan is just, he's just super entertaining. So I feel like... He's gold. Yep. Yeah, and this, this one is of... All of the things that we're looking at early in her career, this is the one that makes the most sense to me. Yep. From why she would take it. Yeah. It's just like, oh, Jackie Chan. All right. Yeah. I'm in on that. One thing that Lucy Luke can hang over the head of Jackie Chan is she did beat him to Saturday Night Live. There's one for her. Well, let's talk about the uh, the film that kind of blew up her career. And that was 2000's Charlie's Angel. She played Alex in a role alongside Cameron Diaz, Sam Rockwell. He got a Saturn nom for her role. And then if you've ever been on the social media or in text and there's that gif of her as a dominatrix that comes from this film. For her, Drew Barrymore and Cameron Diaz, they were on top of the pop culture kingdom because of this film. I just forgot how big of a deal it was. This was the first time I remember seeing a movie that Lucy Liu was in was this movie. And I remember I rewatched it for one of the podcasts we did. I can't remember which one, but I assume it was Cameron Diaz. I like this movie. The second one isn't great, but this one is a lot of fun. Rockwell's a riot in this film, too. He's so much fun. He really is. But it shows a path for kind of what she really could have been. Yes. She's pretty good in this. I I mean, like, they're all great. And they work really well together. The movie itself is a lot of fun. It's not hyper serious. It's it's its own spin on this action, like action comedy, but I'm not taking anything serious. This is all stupid. And there's a real lane for her to be able to do some stuff there. The, my takeaway from this, every time I see this movie pop up for anything, is just how big of a deal it was. And it doesn't seem to be remembered that way. But this movie was massive. Like it was everywhere. The other thing I think was impressive is this was a really successful and pretty well received reboot of a iconic TV show. So to hit on on a critical success and a box office success, and in it being a female, not only dominated but driven movie, I think is really really important. 
there was some drama on set. Ooh. Add her to the list of people that Bill Murray disrespected and pissed off to the point where they vowed to never work with each other again. He seems to have a, a skill for doing that, and she unfortunately was his target during the filming of this. And Bill Murray famously is not in the second one. Oh, all right. Yeah, they said that years later they, they rekindled at a, like an SNL party or something like that. And we're just nice to each other. But it sounds like he was using some pretty abusive language on set with her to the point where she was like, is he talking to me? He is. Oh, OK. Uh, that's pretty unforgivable. Jeez. I will just speak as the only woman on tonight's pod. This movie. And if you talk to like people who were 14, 15, 16 at this time, this movie was everything. Brand extensions, you go into Limited 2, you could get Charlie's Angels branded clothing. You go into <laughs> your local, like, famous footwear, you could get Charlie's Angels branded shoes. Like, you could not escape Charlie's Angels if you were a girl in this period of time. And when you think about, like, the uber 90s kid slumber party movie, this was it. There were Girl Scout troops who would like go and see this together. Like this was tr transformative in terms of s movies that were made for and about powerful like superhero women. I am old enough to have experienced watching Charlie's Angels, the TV show, just to see like the expense, the pure expense of this film and the amount of investment that they made behind the scenes this was during the height of mtv if you guys remember this so the mm -hmm. whole thing was shot kind of like a music video mm -hmm. and if you remember like there were all these brand extensions on mtv like making of charlie's angels like come and see behind the scenes they probably did the beach house you know and like to see all of the extensions of this film is just unbelievable scary movie two made fun of it with the flying kick scene i mean yeah it became, it's iconic it's iconic mm -hmm. I think Lucy Liu for for that group of women was the most unknown, mm -hmm. right? And so for her to like hold her own is just really cool to watch. I love this movie. I think this movie's amazing. There's a lot of TikTok chatter about how the last iteration of Charlie's Angels didn't work and how they should just ask Drew Barrymore to bring the original team back together and reconcept it again and I could see that totally happening, 100%. I think Lucy Liu in an interview said she was not going to be a part of it. She will not do Charlie's Angels 3. The one I saw, she she didn't say no, but she didn't say yes. She basically was like, well, I really like Drew and Cameron. and Okay. You know, if, if I'd be listen if they wanted to pull something together. I don't know if she wants to, but I think she probably recognized it would make some money. So, you know. <laughs> hanging out with women she likes and makes some money it's probably not a terrible idea after her snl appearance she did some more tv so she did a couple episodes each of king of the hill and futurama and also did an episode of sex in the city in the famous like birkenbag scene that apparently is like if you're a sex in the city fan everybody knows about the birkenbag scene they buy birkins out of the back of a trunk of a car and apparently the prop people had the real birkin bag like locked up because they were afraid someone was going to take it <laughs> until they absolutely needed it to film on set that is available on youtube if people want to check it out um, for the sex and city fans but again one or two episodes but big tv shows huge in a, in a lot of cases she's not doing great movies in some cases she is doing really big pop culture significant tv shows even if it's for just an episode or two i think that's important to note Another huge film, 2002, she played Kitty in Chicago alongside Christine Baranski. 
Ever heard of it? <laughs> Kitty Baxter. She's only in one scene, but it's like summary scene of kind of what Chicago is all about, where it's the press are obsessed with like sex and scandal and crime. And she steals the spotlight away from Renee Zellweger for a second with her crime. And then you don't see her the rest of the movie, but it's like a catalyst for the rest of the the show where Renee Zellweger then is faking pregnancies and whatnot. I forgot she was in it. So when I rewatched it, I was like, oh, wow. All right. So this is more like a cameo than anything. Love this movie. Oh, yeah. I know you do. Love this movie. It won a lot of awards and for good reason. Returned back to Charlie's Angels in full throttle in 2003 alongside the the usual crew. And then 2003, she got her MTV award for best villain alongside Daryl Hannah in Kill Bill Volume 1. Zoren Ishii slash Cottonmouth. She is such a badass in this movie, man. This movie. I feel like we do this every time. every time I watch a Tarantino movie for this, I'm just like, this might be his best movie. I think this movie is a masterpiece. I love this movie so much. One of the things that stuck out to me this time watching it, and I watched it with my wife, this is her first time watching it. So this is like a monumental moment. Ooh. Tarantino as a director, I just find endlessly interesting. And a movie like this is a perfect example of what makes him unique because he makes so many bold choices. Like just, they're so bold, the choices that he makes. In this movie, every single one of them works. You're watching it and you're like, this shouldn't work. This song choice right here shouldn't work, but it does. This animated sequence shouldn't work, but it does. The way these characters talk to each other should not work, but it does. We'll never have another director like this because there's so many times where directors will make really bold choices and we applaud them or I applaud them for the fact that they made the choice, even though the execution didn't work. And here he is making bold choices in every way. And it just works perfectly. I also think the violence in this is, it's wonderful. Uh, Just stylized violence. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. When she cuts old boy's head off and the blood squirts up, it's, that's a beautiful shot. (laughs) And it's like, it makes, it makes the hyper violence useful. It does something instead of it just being violent in a movie that I will talk about later for violence sake, or because it's cool, he's doing something that matches the aesthetic that he's creating, which I think is great. You're referring to Kung Fu Panda later, right? For violence, for violence sake. So we're talking about super violent. <laughs> okay. I was blown away with how violent that movie. This makes sense. This is probably my favorite Lucy Liu role, to be completely honest. I love, mm-hmm. I love the character as it's written. I love the way she plays it of being very, very like just a dark, dangerous human who's so sarcastic and dry. I think that personality is just fascinating. I agree, Kyle. I think uh, he uses her beauty and her ability to speak in a very polite and soft-spoken way as a way to like enhance the character, how brutal they are. Like when she kills that dude and then like threatens everyone and but gives them like the coach slash boss like pep talk like hey if you guys if we disagree on things you should be able to talk to me about those things like we want to as a group be, you know successfully and collectively succeed except for that one little thing we just went through yeah except for this thing because i'll never talk about that again <laughs> like, it's tremendous. I agree with what you said, Aubrey. In rewatching it, I forgot about some of the scenes. Specifically, I forgot about the animation scene. Oh, yeah. She's got this stone cold look on her face, but then she breaks and she's got such a beautiful smile. And you're like immediately off put by it. You're like, oh my God. Like, I know she can kill everyone there, but she seems really nice. Like, I don't know what's going on. And then 
it's like 30 minutes of the most cartoonish fight scene you've ever seen. Does their own stunts. Give her credit. I got to say, this is the first film where I remember somebody said Quentin Tarantino turns violence into another character. Mm. So that's why it's so big and he doubles down on all of his decisions. I would give a million dollars, like a good, strong Millie to see him working with her through a scene. Yeah. Because I think that say what you want about him and his style and his approach, his perspective on women, like say whatever you want about that. I think he has identified some really key and unique characteristics that she has as an actress. Mm -hmm. And he just doubles down on that. And he does that with a lot of people. That's so interesting. But I think with her specifically, like he leverages stereotypes in a way to shock you. Does that make sense? Like, Mm -hmm. and I think that's really um, a sign of, again, his totally transcendent creativity such an interesting approach to her as a performer and i wonder if she's ever experienced that before or since her segment of this movie in my opinion can summarize tarantino because you have incredible music selection you have incredible cinematography he consistently he doesn't get the best out of performers i don't think i think he changes things to fit performers best. And he, all of that occurs in this, what, maybe 18 minutes? This hits it all, and I appreciate that he, especially with a performer like Lucy Liu, will tailor the, the content and the direction to bring out the best in them. And it's a, it's a blast, and the music is so fun, and it's so perfect. Two cases, point and Corey's point, I think, Tarantino does this with everybody. I think it's a great thing that should always be talked about with him, what he does for the actors that he believes in and casts in these roles. But I think even down to just the aesthetics of how she's looked and how she looks and how she's dressed mm-hmm. and the way he frames it. Watching this again, I just was blown away with how beautiful this was, how he uses color. And we know because he's an insane person that all of this stuff matters. <laughs> so when she's walking down the hallway, with all of her people behind her, this is an incredible shot. And I, I literally turned to my wife and I said, I wonder if that's why she was casted for this scene here because of the aesthetics of it. And he builds this around her. And this is, I think, by far and away her best performance. It's the best usage of it. For someone who's so for someone who is a fan of her, this movie would would be thrilling and also outrageously frustrating. Yeah. Because there's a lot here that she can do that doesn't seem to ever get captured again. He doesn't really flex these kind of muscles and really, I mean, we'll talk about elementary in a little bit. I think you see some of it there, but there's, unfortunately, you don't see it a lot of the movie roles the rest of the way. Which is true about a lot of Tarantino's actors, unfortunately. There's a handful of them that, like, they are at their best with him. And it's it's, it's sad. And of anybody we've covered, she by far has the coolest gang name. The Crazy 88s can't be beat. All right, uh, next year she did Kill Bill Volume 2, same character, similar vibes, right? Outside of the the acting side, 2004, she joined the Committee of 100, which is a Chinese-American organization that my understanding is advocates for the interests of Chinese-Americans. And I think that's a cool mid-2000s, like your career starts to get big, you start to get politically involved and engaged. And I know that's something we value when when we kind of talk about these actors. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're doing it for a country that has had a tenuous relationship with the u.s like you can be putting yourself 
first she originally puts herself out there just as an Asian American actress. Good point. Right. And uh, trying to break stereotypes that way, but then trying to like mend relationships between two countries that have had a difficult history. You could get blackballed for that. And it might not be public. And to do that, I thought took some guts. So Mulan 2, not quite the original film. Uh, this is one of three films I think were rated at 0%. We gave James a different one. So I did watch Mulan 2. Did anybody else watch Mulan 2? I watched it on the plane. No, because I, was, I got my fill on zeros. No, some would label this film as a joke, so I didn't watch it. <laughs> the very frustrating synopsis of Mulan 2, if you didn't know, is about Mulan. They get asked to transfer three of the emperor's daughters to get arranged marriage. And their three companions were supposed to help move these women, they all fall for each other. And so it's like one big, like, exactly what you would expect it would be, it, but it did not need to exist in the slightest bit whatsoever, and it was just a waste of everyone's time. But I saw it. It's sex trafficking gone wrong, is what you're telling us. Yes, 100%. As opposed to when it famously goes very well. Cool, cool, cool. Marketed to kids. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, that's the entire storyline, is, is selling off to heal political factions his three daughters are getting arranged marriage. And shockingly, they realize, I don't like that very much. Date these goobers that are with us along the way. That's Mulan 2, and that's why it's at 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Do the five, six, seven, eights make an appearance in this movie on the soundtrack with the woo-woo-woo-woo-woo? That, that maybe could have saved it, but what you've described so far sounds unwatchable. Now, you're going to have to look up the IMDb soundtrack because I don't, I don't remember that part, okay. to be honest. I don't remember the music very well. That's, that sucks because that's, that's like what makes the first Mulan great is the music's awesome. Who voiced the dragon in the first Mulan? Is Eddie Murphy, right? That was Eddie Murphy. It was Eddie Murphy. Yeah. It's not him in the second one. It's somebody very similar. And the whole story is him sabotaging Mulan because he's losing his job working with, like, with the spirits. And he's mad because she's getting married, so he'll no longer have the job. So he spends the whole movie trying to sabotage her. Like, that's also why the movie's terrible. Because it's the exact opposite of what you got in experience in the first movie. It's so petty. Sounds like the whole movie is the opposite of the first movie. Yep, basically. It's real bad. Uh, but I watched it. And I'm here to do the philanthropic thing sometimes. Domino, 2005. A movie we talked about on the Edgar Ramirez episode. Tony Scott picture. Very Tony Scott directing style. Think like Michael Bay, Bad Boys 2, but on steroids with the, the edits and the cuts. And she plays Taryn. Was Kira Knightley in this? Yeah, she's the main character. She is Domino. I feel like I remember enjoying this movie, but I don't ever remember watching it again. So I don't think I enjoyed it that much. The visual spectacle, if you like frenetic films that are all over the place. Kind of like Man on Fire? Very similar. He's Tony Scott's the director of Man on Fire, isn't he? I believe so, yeah. I think he is. I think it's worth checking out, not for Lucy Liu necessarily, but it's just like, if you want to get a really good snapshot of what Tony Scott films look like, this is this is a good one for it. She's alongside Stanley the Tooch, another, speaking of Jeffrey, uh, in 2006's Lucky Number Slevin. Josh Hartnett, Bruce Willis, assassin film. Did anybody watch this? I did. I've never watched this movie because I hate it. I, I hate the title. You've never seen it? Oh, dude, it, don't read the stupid reviews. This movie's good. Is it? I, I don't mind it. She's like a quirky, fun neighbor, right? Yeah. Her and Josh Hartnett are essentially... I don't want to spoil anything since you guys haven't seen it and James has told you you should see it. So I'm not going to speak too much. But Quirky Neighbor is a really good way to put it. She drives a lot of the dialogue, a lot of the plot with Josh Hartnett. And Bruce Willis is pretty darn good in this movie, James. 
perfect for the role they cast him in. I totally agree. I just feel like with movies like this, people need it to either be like the most smart, groundbreaking thing ever, or they're going to say it's stupid. And it's like, it could just be fun. It could just be a fun, clever, weird movie. Doesn't Not everything needs to be Pulp Fiction. You know, some things can just be a version of that that's fun and dumb. Yep. Tucci plays a cop. Morgan Freeman and Ben Kingsley play like basically like gang kingpins. There's good actors. There's really good actors in this film. Yeah, I'm here for this, but that tells you, I didn't know any of those people were in this movie. I didn't know what it was about. I saw that title and I was just like, no, I'm out. And I've been saying that since 2006. Uh, Aubrey, I do that with so many things. I didn't see Looper <laughs> for years because I thought Joseph Gordon-Levitt's <laughs> prosthetic nose looks stupid. And then I watched the movie and I was like, this movie rocks. I'm such an idiot. <laughs> I think she's pretty solid in this film. I think she's a good one. I don't know if you go for her, but I like her character. It's different. I totally agree. Plays into the plot of the movie. I enjoyed it. All right. How about a film that Corey didn't enjoy? And that is 2007's Watching the Detective. She played Violet. <laughs> I know you're listening and can't see her, but she's shaking her head right now uh, for people listening. This movie makes me so unreasonably angry. <laughs> so you referenced Aubrey earlier. There's a film that you were like, it's kind of noir, attempting to be noir. This is a play on old detective movies, and there's all these visual jokes, but it really is a detective novel. What's the movie with John Cusack? The book owns a record store. On air. Not on air. High Fidelity. Imagine High Fidelity mixed with that horrible Polly movie with Ben Stiller, mixed with a really awful graduate film school project. Awful, awful, awful. <laughs> horrible, horrible, horrible. Poorly paced. She is a character who does nothing but the entire film plays a series of ill-timed pranks on this poor hapless idiot who's trying to keep his video store afloat. The poor hapless idiot is played by Killian Murphy, who is one of the most dynamic, villainous, rich, nuanced actors on the planet Earth, and he is reduced to playing a foil for her jokes. It's horrible. Horrible, horrible. So, Corey, I'm just, I just want to, I want to connect some dots. So you didn't like this. I did not like this film case. Thank you for clarifying. I did not enjoy this and movie. We, that's, it's important we don't leave any uh, stone unturned there. Very, very this important. is hilarious. Because as I was going through her search this morning <laughs> my wife and i saw this movie and my wife goes "Ooh, killian murphy if we had time we would have watched this so i'm glad we didn't also i respect and admire you for saying what you said about killian murphy because it's all actual it's all facts we should just say how great he is more and more often again it's a sign that whoever is working on pitching her to projects does a horrible job <laughs> I think about like how you characterize your talent when you have a roster of talent, how you characterize that person and the lack of care and attention to her skill set is so apparent in this. It is it is so ridiculous. I just want to talk. I just want to talk to whoever booked her for this gig because they should be fired immediately. They're horrible, horrible people. I'm saying I watched a, a movie that came out that exact same year called Codename the Cleaner with Cedric the Entertainer that was truly awful. And it was just like one of those, like I can play it in the background things. And I'm like, what? These rolls on, Lucy. This is so bad. I bet Cat Williams didn't like the cleaner either. 
<laughs> Chalk another one up. 2007, not a great year for her for project choices. 2008, she is Master Viper in Kung Fu Panda and all the other Kung Fu Pandas, including the fourth one that's coming out soon, right? Or did it just come out or is it coming out soon? I think it's out. Is it out now? I think. Additional voice work in Kung Fu Panda's Master Viper. This movie's good. This is like a fun DreamWorks animated movie. It's beautiful. Yes. It is beautiful. I was watching this movie today and I was blown away with how beautiful this movie is. It's one of those that's like, it's better than your average animated movie. It's not just for children. There's, there's a lot to take away from it as an adult. The, the animation should be watched and admired. I can't speak to the other Kung Fu Pandas, but this one is really good. What's a Master Viper like, her character? It's one of those things where like, all right, Jack Black, Jack Black takes up all the air in the room for me. And so like all of the other characters, they're kind of hard to like identify voice work style for me. It was just like what they're doing on screen is interesting and it relates to the animal that it is. So she's doing a lot of like agile, like slick stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But in terms of voice work, I'm not going to, there's not a ton that I found to be overly memorable outside of particularly Jack Black. I forgot Angelina Jolie is in these movies too, as Tigress. So I guess we have talked about them. I'm good at identifying actors' voices in animated movies for whatever reason. It's like a random thing I'm like kind of good at. My wife doesn't like it. I had no idea that was Angelina Jolie, which kind of speaks to my point. They're all kind of rigid in the way that their their character archetypes are supposed to be. This is a big deal in animation, though, because it matters. Because I wouldn't say that she has a voice that's super noticeable. That stands out. Not an animation, comparatively. I don't mean this as a shot. It's just one of those where, like, I wouldn't be like, "Oh, let's get Lucy Liu to do this thing," mm-hmm. and then you put it, you put all of those people, including Angelina Jolie, up against Jack Black, who's absolutely eating, and it's just like there's nowhere for anybody to go. The movie is still great. Like, this is all just one of those things. But to your point, it's it's an odd choice that gets made time and time again. You could save yourself some money when just put regular voice actors up against Jack Black and it'd be fine. Uh-huh. Yep. Her voice may not stand out, but in 2020, we're not going to talk about it, but it sure the hell is relaxing when she did that HBO project with Calm. <laughs> <laughs> you watch her narrate the underwater world or whatever it is, and I put that on a plane, and I had to watch it three or four times because I kept falling asleep. It, it, was, it sounded good. Do you have a place in your Munson meter for like voice narration that calmly puts you to sleep? It's a pretty cool project, you know? That's intangibles, baby. That's what I hear. Yeah, I agree. One last show to talk about before we get to Largest Critic Gap, and that is Dirty Sexy Money. She played Nola in 13 episodes between 2008 and 2009. Dirty Sexy Money was like cheap succession. If you look at the cast... I mean, it's got everything that you would think family drama would. Yeah, the filthy rich darling family. So it's it's kind of like, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, it was a soap opera. Sounds like the prequel to Succession. Yeah, I mean, it was a soap opera. You look at like the people that are in it. You've got Blair Underwood, Peter Krause, Jill Clayburgh, if you know who that is. Um, Lucy, William Baldwin, Lucy, William Baldwin, Donald Sutherland, who played the patriarch of the family. There are all the tent poles that happen in a family soap opera. You got funerals, you got people that get shot, people that get poisoned. You've got affairs. I mean, it was a soap opera. I could see how her, again, her representation could sell her on this. Mm-hmm. We're going to get you on ABC. 
you're going to be on, you know, a, a good night of the week. I think it was on like a Wednesday or Thursday night. I mean, it could become appointment television. Mm -hmm. People could fall in love with your character. I don't know. I could see why they, how they could sell her on this. She probably got a really nice paycheck. All right, let's get into the largest critic app. It is going to be Tinkerbell. She played Silvermist. Uh, she appears as Silvermist in six different films over the time. And I, I drew this one. Uh, largest critic app, meaning critics gave it a 90 and audiences gave it a 73. So generally pretty high across the board. The stories behind the film were much more interesting than the film itself. But it also wasn't built for me. I recognize that and understand that. Shocker, Tinkerbell is not a project aimed at middle-aged white men. Here we are. I'm going to be honest, I didn't, other than Tinkerbell and like Hook, and I, don't know, I, I just don't, I didn't know much about Tinkerbell uh, and I went in blind and that's okay. But this was the first film where Tinker actually got to speak, to, to do lines, to have speaking role, which that's cool. I mean, that, and I also learned a new word, flitterific. That's a, that's a new one I'm going to add to my lexicon going forward. But to the interesting parts beyond the scenes, originally the voice for Tinkerbell was going to be Brittany Murphy. Rest in peace. And that was then it was taken by Mae Whitman after that. So I did not know that. And 80% of the film was done before Disney and Pixar merged. Originally, this was being made in Disney's direct-to-DVD division, which is why when you look it up online, the other films have more production value, especially on like the covers and things like that, because they weren't made to go directly to DVD. I thought it was interesting that they made it 80% of it and then when they merged, they basically made them redo a ton of the plot to the film. Apparently, it was virtually unwatchable and took several years to get back on track. So I think they finished this thing originally in like 06, and it took them two years to make all the changes and then push it out. I know Case loves a good dr drama behind the, yeah, the camera story, so I'm sure there's more there. The person who was in charge of the direct-to-DVD it, they, I mean, they, they were like, oh, yeah, you've cost us way too much money. We're moving on. Wow. So it cost her her spot there with Disney. It features fellow Munson, Angelica Houston, as Queen Clarion. So she's not the only one um, that we've talked about that's in it. And according to the Disney wi wiki, she's a water talent fairy of East Asian appearance. Take that for what you will. Her character is relentlessly upbeat and positive. I also read her guilty pleasure is listening to gossip from the babbling brook. And that made me laugh. That's fair. But I'll say this to, to Aubrey's point. As a voice actor, she's pretty subtle comparatively to some of the other voice actors in this film. Like Kristen Chenoweth plays Rosetta. And you know immediately when Kristen Chenoweth is talking. <laughs> that is not a subtle voice actor in the slightest because of her accent. Whereas if I didn't know it was Lucy Liu, I don't know if I would have picked her out. Right. And I'm also not the best at that all the time. So with her, it's a little less obvious. And because of that, I appreciated that. But, I mean, there's something to be said about she played this character a lot. The, she probably made a lot of money because what's fascinating about this franchise is they dumped $150 million into it. And it didn't have any North American box office. It's all world gross. And of that $150 million, they only world gross 29.4. And so they through an awful lot of money at this project across all of the um, installments of it. And it seemed like they were willingly losing money. So to hear you say that they had went back and were like, redo it all, basically make this movie twice. It makes sense because it's, it's inexplicable. I mean, the first one, Tinkerbell, that $50 million budget, 
9.2 million world gross. And you're like, okay, well, we're done with that. Nope. <laughs> Tinkerbell Lost Treasure, $30 million, 8.6. Oh, we're done with that. Nope. Secret of the Wings. Secret of the Wings, $35 million budget, 627000 world gross. So they just kept progressively losing more money, and they're just like, yeah, go for it. Go for it. Maybe they sold a lot of merchandise. I don't, I don't know. That, that must have been the angle, right? Maybe that was their business model. But it, it, it's, we have not seen anything like that in anything else we've done. This is so fascinating, Case. This is why... I love coming on this show because you really like think about like what were the business decisions that led to these de- these choices, right? And I, the one thing I did notice when I started this film, I'll be honest, I did not finish it, but I started this movie and saw the Chiron and it says Disney and then it does this swoop and it says fairies. And I know enough about Disney to know that they do huge franchise expansions both at the parks and in terms of merchandising for the princesses line. So all the princesses have their own extension and they want you to identify your own princess and they want a princess for every girl. Right. And I'm like, I have to believe that they initially thought, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do the same thing, but with fairies and fairies are going to be international. Fairies can be in any language. Right. So I have to assume maybe that's what they were thinking. I don't know. Had to be the off the screen. They were willing to lose money there because they were going to make it up elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine it's a, it was a DVD play. Yeah. Because like Tinkerbell is massively popular. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And Disney makes a big deal out of her in the parks and all and, and with their merchandising, which always made not the most sense to me, but I imagine this was probably a DVD play. Yeah. That's a huge moneymaker. Even around this time, that still made a lot of money. So I could see that being a thing. Why they threw it in theaters? Yeah, that I that's a, that's harder to explain. But maybe they were just like, we're gonna we'll we'll recoup enough of this anyways. Let's just throw it in there and see what happens. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was all international theaters. So to Corey's point, maybe they were thinking, hey, we'll clean up on DVDs domestically, and then let's let's give this a shot. But what's crazy to me is they did it six times. <laughs> Yeah, no, that doesn't. I mean, three strikes are out. Nope, four, five. I mean, it's like cricket rules all of a sudden. They just keep swinging. <laughs> well, if you look at the first movie, it's very beautiful looking. It's the it's very expensive looking. It is, and it looks it looks made for a big screen. Mm-hmm. The first one, obviously, I haven't seen the other ones. I haven't seen the full first film. I haven't either. But I'll say this, like. You can do voiceovers and get a lot more inexpensive talent. So you were not listening to Lucy Liu, Kristen Chenoweth, Pamela Adlon, Mae Whitman, if you're watching this in Japan. You're not. You're not listening to them. You're listening to voice actors who are Japanese, right? And so maybe they thought this is going to be something we can extend on the cheap to these audiences that are also huge fans of Disney and Pixar. I don't know. I, I would be really interested in seeing how this all broke down, you know? I think I found why they did it six times. How much did you say the box office was, Case? $29.4 million total. So in estimated domestic DVD sales for the first Tinkerbell movie, they made $58 million. Okay. So it was all DVD. I mean, they were, they were going after DVD play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you go to the IMDb profile... The first still is not an image from the movie. It's Selena Gomez from the music video that they made from the movie. <laughs> so like it's a pop. It was really like a capture young girls pop culture thing going on here. Marketing. 
they feature the song with Selena. Hilarious. Who would have thought that that like reviews of Tinkerbell would be this uh, interesting? No one, not right. me. And it's not because of me. We went MythBuster mode. Well, let's get to uh, her next big TV show from 2012 to 2019. She plays Dr. Joan Watson in Elementary in 154 episodes, a show that's like a modern retelling of Sherlock Holmes. 154 episodes of anything is impressive. It's crazy good. It's impressive. People ride hard for this show. They ride hard for this show, which was on C. Was it on CBS or Fox? I think it's CBS. I think CBS. And there's another show called Forever that people ride hard for. People ride hard for elementary. They were horrified when it went away. Mm-hmm. 150 episodes. It makes sense. <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Kill Bill is my favorite project she's in. This is my favorite role of hers. Mm-hmm. From the jump, from the first scene when she comes on. I'm just like, oh, I love her in this role. She's fantastic. Fantastically casted. And her performance was fantastic. Did she get any awards for this, Kyle? It only got nominated for two primetime Emmys and for its entire run, which is kind of interesting. You know, it, it's not a brand new concept of a eccentric, crazy-minded case solver. And then you have a, you know, a grounded character. I mean, it's it's not revolutionary from that standpoint, but it was super fun to see her in this role. I think there's very few actresses that would have made this role work. And she's she's on the short list. Again, those moments where she gets a role where she really gets to flex her acting muscles, I'm so excited for it. Unfortunately, those are very few and far between in her career. Do you want to guess her salary per episode? That's what I was going to say. Yeah, go ahead. James always comes in with that. How much did you get for episode? 125K per episode. 125K? She's made more money off this show than the rest of the movie she's been in uh, salary-wise. Wow. Good for her. Just under 20 mil. Just under 18.2 mil. If you can make it on a network television series, you're you're good. You're set for life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this was one of those to me, it was like blue bloods. It was like I would see the I would see the advertisement all the time. And I'm like, this is just a reminder that so many more people than I thought still watch network television. Yeah. How long were these episodes? An hour. Hour? I just want you guys to realize how much of a piece of shit we all have to feel like that this woman oh, no. will go to a set on one day, one day to film one hour of television and would make more than me an entire year of working as an adult human. <laughs> Two years for me. Kyle, it's supposed to inspire you to try to work harder. Okay. That's what it's supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> That's the American dream, Kyle. Stay in school, kids. As a Lucy Lou fan, I will summarize it like this. It thrills me that she finally got this role. Yeah. Same. I love it. 100%. This will make you feel better or worse, Kyle. Think about what her team is getting paid as a result of her salary. When she gets that level of income per episode, her whole team gets yanked up with her. Mm -hmm. She's first on the call sheet. Yeah. She was way more well-known than the guy who played Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yeah. Yep. So, like, think about that. That is so cool. Like, that is dope. No shade on her. No, no, no. You're just, it's shade on you. It just shows the disparity between the average person and what entertainment people make, right? Like, it's just wild. And the taxes, am I right? Filming one episode of that television show would change my life. (laughs) Could literally take two years off of work. (laughs) Just watch Sundance films. But then, you know, who would educate the youth? That's true. (laughs) The YouTube, TikTok. TikTok would educate you. 
in your state for now until they ban TikTok like they did in Wyoming. That's never happening yeah. in Florida. We don't ban things here. Did you guys love The Man with the Iron Fists from 2012? Where she played Madame Blossom, a film that was on Netflix when we announced this and then is no longer on Netflix, so I couldn't watch it. <laughs> I had to rent it. I rented this, started watching it, and was immediately disinterested. Uh, I'm going to say something shocking. The RZA from Wu-Tang, not a great director. Oh, he's the director of this? Yes. And writer. Oh, boy. Not great. It's one of those where, like, I was watching it and I was happy for him because I know, like, Wu Tang is into kung fu and stuff like that. Yeah. It's very much a movie that's like, hey, I love kung fu movies. Wouldn't it be dope if I made a kung fu movie? That's what it. That's what it feels like. This is the movie I referenced earlier that had a bunch of violence for violence' sake. There's nothing artistic or interesting about what the violence is doing or any of the story beats. Now, I only watched about 40 minutes of this because for whatever reason, I'm assuming Apple, the people that were spying on me and monitoring my habits, decided that it was best for me to stop watching this because the playback was not able for me to pull up the seven times I tried to pull it back up when I got kicked out of this. So I've only seen 40 minutes. Mm. Maybe the next 50 minutes is great. But based off what I saw, probably not. This movie's not very good at all. And she plays a bizarre character in this. She's like the madam in like a brothel where Russell Crowe comes in and she like, it's just weird. I don't, don't watch this movie and I'm going to forget that it happened. I see our boy Rick Yoon is in this. I was going to say, throwback to our Fast and Furious segment. <laughs> Famous Ralph Lauren Polo model, Rick Yoon. The RZA also acts in this, by the way. The RZA is also acting in this. I saw that. He's fourth. And narrating. Of course. But again, another, what were you doing doing this movie? You're in the middle of elementary making 125K of, of Bob. What are you doing? Maybe she filmed this before elementary started. I'll give her that. Maybe give her that credit. Well, and it was produced by Quentin Tarantino, right? Um, so maybe he was like, hey, hey, girl, hey. Yeah. Come and take a chance on RZA. Personal favor. And also, like, you see the cast get tied together. A lot of time other actors will see who's also agreed to it and be like, Oh shit, Russell Crowe's doing it. All right. Yep. Maybe, yeah. maybe this movie's good. All right. I'll, I'm in. Yeah. Yep. Eli Roth co-wrote it. That's a lot of big names. The bummer here, Aubrey is, I mean, the Wu-Tang clan is famously named after old Chinese action movies. And the fact that the RZA, who is a lifelong fan of this art form couldn't pull it off is that's sad. I'm, I feel bad for him. I wish he had made it happen. I, I wish he did too. Especially after he was, he was drafted in the racial draft in I think 2007. So <laughs> you would think you would. <laughs> that's amazing. Wu-Tang financially, nothing Dude. to fuck with. I get it. Diversify your bonds. I really feel like the takeaway here is that making movies is hard. Yep. Yeah. It is. Yes. Even with Eli Roth, Lucy Liu, and Russell Crowe, making movies is hard. First and foremost, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. It's a Studio Ghibli film. She played Lady, Lady Sagami. Chloe Grace Moretz and James Marsden are both voice actors in that English version of it. And that film is supposed to be incredible. And I'm sad I didn't get around to actually watching it this time. Because it got like a 90 meta score. Personal life stuff. In 2015, she had a son via this gestational surrogate. So she had her son Rockwell through a surrogate. So number one. Fantastic for her. Like, do your thing, girl. You don't need no man. Do your thing. And number two, Rockwell's an awesome fucking name for a kid. I think Rockwell is such a cool name. 
Rocky for short. Different. I don't. We haven't seen that in ninety six episodes for anybody we cover. Cool. So I think that's cool. She rules. Mm-hmm. And then speaking of a couple more big shows, she just did one one to three episodes for, and that was Girls and Sesame Street in twenty sixteen. So just popping out some cool shows there. And then all the enthusiasm dies when we get to 2018's Future World. She plays the queen, one of three 0% films. And James drew this one. And let's see what happens. You heard that, folks. That's a one of three zero, meaning not a single <laughs> critic said they liked this movie. And so you think, oh, well, you know, critics aren't always right. Sometimes, you know, they're a little hoity-toity. How'd the audience feel? Uh, it's a 12%. So it's a bad movie. I can confirm it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> this movie came out in 2018. It's directed by James Franco. And it's actually following his like smash hit directorial uh i don't know if it was a debut but the disaster artist who got nominated for a bunch of academy awards and then to follow it up with this movie is pretty funny the plot of this movie kind of like a mixture of actually it's not kind of like a mixture it's exactly a mixture of mad max and westworld and a little bit of like terminator it's clear that he saw those movies or tv shows and was like what if i can make my own and lost steam immediately. The plot of this movie is that inside a desert oasis, which is called Oasis, in a kind of post-apocalypse future, there's a queen named Queen, uh, who's played by Lucy Liu. She's uh, laying there dying as her son is traveling across this barren wasteland is what it's told to us, but really it's just like West Texas. Like They tell us it's like, oh, this is the barren wasteland. I was like, this just looks like normal like rural America. <laughs> He's trying to find medicine to save his mom's life, Lucy Lou's life. So he evades these violent raiders on motorbikes, led by uh, the warlord who's played by James Franco. His name is Warlord. And his enforcer, played by Method Man, the prince, whose name is Prince, journeys to, to a place called Love Town, ran by a futuristic pimp by the name of, called Love Lord, who's played, of course, by Snoop Dogg. And I will say, Snoop Dogg actually did pretty good in this role. I would say of all the people yeah, acting in this movie, he was the one that I was like, all right, yeah, I get it. I think he probably ad-libbed the most. And it's kind of funny, and you kind of believe it because he's playing a futuristic version of kind of what he portrayed himself as in the early 90s anyway, and it kind of works. But then Prince meets Ash, who is a AI robot and also sex companion slash assassin, who is like the right-hand woman of James Franco, who randomly just becomes like obsessed with her own soul-searching journey. They don't explain why. And then she decides she wants to save this prince until they are captured by a drug lord whose name is Drug Lord, who uh, is played by Mila Jovich, who runs a place called Drug Town. This movie kind of comes across like, like if a film student loved Mad Max, loved Westworld, wanted to make their own version and combine the two stories, but didn't have like the creativity or the budget to produce a movie. So if you saw this, you'd be like, hey, man, good job. Like, great first draft. I'll give you a C plus. You almost plagiarized those other movies, but you didn't. So like, tinker with it and resubmit it is what my teacher, professor kind of vision of this would be. The problem with it is, though, this is major movie stars and it is a movie that was made by a guy who just got nominated for academy award for disaster artist and everything here is like skin deep and shallow and 
all those other films just do them so much better. Mad Max is amazing. The original Westworld was uh, kind of like sci-fi that no one had ever seen before. And then you get James Franco, who's like playing a villain that has like fuzzy orange teeth and he makes sure that like you see it. So and like you can almost feel him be like, hey, I'm the bad guy. Don't I look like a bad guy? Do you see my gross teeth? And Lucy Liu is like, every time you see her, it looks like she's in like a shampoo commercial. It's she's having these like deep thoughts and where she lives is beautiful, but she's dying and she's wearing like wistful dresses that are blowing in the wind as she says sentences like my son save yourself don't save me it's like it's it's truly a horrific movie i think that it was a money laundering scheme of some sorts i don't understand why anyone would sign on to this (laughs) money laundering scheme (laughs) i think the two best actors in the movie are rappers i think method man and snoop dogg give the best performances I wish I could save anything for it, but no, like Lucy's terrible in it, but everyone's terrible in it for a zero. I don't know, but I think a 12 is probably pretty close. I think the audience probably nailed it with this review. Anyone who says that they like this movie is more so just saying like they like the idea of post-apocalypse movies, not this actual movie itself. I think they knew somebody on set and they're just trying to be nice. That's what it is. Right. It's like, Hey, I'm in this movie. So I like this movie. Like that's the only reason I'll accept I like your th- your theory that this was a money laundering scheme. I think that's fantastic. It's the best one yet, and it makes sense. Yep. What a dynamic for the episode, because we go from the 0% with James all the way to no reviews in between, but straight to highest critic score to a wonderful rom-com called Set It Up, which she plays a character named Kirsten. And Corey, our guest Munson, drew this one, and pretty good luck of the draw. She avoided Future World. I just want to thank the Munson gods for serving this up to me because I've seen set it up multiple times of my own accord because it is that good. This is a great example of a sweet spot film with a lot of vehicles and the vehicles are really, really effective. So if you don't know anything about set it up, Lucy Liu plays a character known as Kirsten, and she is the boss. For the people that are listening to this, it's like a fictional bar stool with better office furniture and less spit cups. That's what this is. So Kirsten's the the lead editor at like a bar stool like publication. That's a great description. And she's a boss. I mean, a really hard-nosed character. It stars Glenn Powell before he dyed his hair and lost a little bit of weight. And Zoe Deutsch, who's a Nepo baby. Her role is really rooted in like kind of that like tiger lady mystique. She's a hard-charging, really driven, really discerning professional. And Zoe Deutsch plays her assistant. And her and Glenn Powell conspire together to set up Kirsten, Lucy Liu's character, with Tate Diggs' character. And they basically are like, we're only going to get downtime if we fix up our bosses, who are both absolutely humbling people. And we come to find out that Tate Diggs, spoiler alert, is an actual terrible person. He's awful. He's awful. First of all, it's got a female director who knows how to drive through a story very quickly. It feels like a short watch. It's a really easy watch. You know, that rom-com sweet spot of like 90 minutes to maybe one, 130? 105. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It knows what it is. Um, I want to give shout outs to some of the other casting because I think the casting in this is yeah. great. John Rudninsky, who I think 
fired from SNL way too soon. Hilarious stand-up comedian. Titus Burgess is in this film. Creepy Tim? Yeah, he plays Creepy Tim in this movie. <laughs> it's it's yeah, yeah. And, and Pete Davidson's in this film. Yes. Glenn Powell's gay roommate. And seeing Pete <laughs> Davidson play a queer character who's just like a bro who's into dudes is the best. It's genius casting, super smart. Anyway, Lucy Liu is clearly the elder stateswoman on this shoot. She clearly absolutely knows how to participate in something scaled like this. And you can tell that she was probably the easiest person on that whole set. She's experienced, right? She like knows how to do this stuff. The perspective is that clearly a female perspective. It's obviously because of the the director. Um, shout out to the director. She directed this incredible documentary called The Wrecking Crew, which is about session musicians, if you're into that at all, if you're into music documentaries. Yeah. Who could do that? Like a cool, fizzy rom-com and then The Wrecking Crew. Like, that's awesome. Anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing more work from her. Now I'm just on Claire Scanlon's IMDb. Same. And she's directed like two to three episodes of like every major show since 2020. Yes. I'm like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Saved by the Bell, Abbott Elementary, Last Man on Earth, The Office. I'm like, she's she knows what she's doing. She's working. She's just mm-hmm. working, working. She's on that grind. I love seeing talent like that. I love this movie. I love Glenn Powell. He's my birthday boy. He and I share the same birthday. I'm happy to share that with him. Uh, what I love about Lucy Liu's character, she has some redeeming qualities by the end of the film. She's not just a hard-ass boss. She actually does care about Zoe Deutsch's character and is just like trying to prepare her for the industry. Yeah. Whereas Tay Diggs' character has no redeeming value. He is a piece of shit all the way to the last scene. And I've never been so happy to see that. Because I feel like a lot of times it's like they either have to be the same level of awful or great. And that's just not the case in life. And it's not the case here. So I appreciate that about setting it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like this movie. This was my first time watching it. I missed the initial craze. Mainly because I didn't know hardly anybody involved other than Lucy Liu and Tay Diggs. And also Netflix has an, has an atrocious track record for movies like this. Which was alive and well, I think, at this time. It was, it was a good time. I, I mean, Tay Diggs' his character is getting slandered all throughout this this little conversation, as which he should. However, Tay Diggs, the actor, great job. Great job. Yeah. Which is the one point of contention in watching this movie that I have. Tay Diggs is believably a terrible boss and terrible person and someone I would hate to work for. I didn't fully get that from Lucy Liu. Mm-hmm. She seemed like someone who was trying to be me, but wasn't really getting there. And I was a little let down by that. I think the movie doesn't suffer from it, though. I think she's great. I think the way that you described it, Corey, is really well. Like She came in and did the job and kind of kept the train on the tracks and going the way that it needed to go. Because I could see Tay Diggs showing up and being like, oh, I'm throwing a TV out the office today, bet. Like, you know, he's in there doing his thing. I wish that she would have been able to find a little bit more, like, a little bit more of an edginess. But other than that, I think the movie is fine. I wouldn't have never even probably noticed or said anything if we weren't talking about her. I would have just been like, oh, cool, good movie. I think it's super charming, and I'm forever in a quest to find new and enjoyable rom-coms because my wife loves rom-coms and you've seen the classics and you've seen them like 20 times. And so when this came up, uh, came out and it got such good reviews, I was really excited to watch it. And I agree. I think it's delightful. And I think it 
plays off of the chemistry between Glenn Powell and Zoe Deutsch, where you, even though, you know, they're both like stunningly attractive people, you, for some reason, believe them as these kind of interns who are barely holding it together and are incredibly flustered and, you know, low paying jobs, despite being, you know, almost 30 years old. And it works. I, I very much enjoy the movie. She got her Hollywood star in 2019, a couple of years after David Spade, but she got it. You know, it's important. I know for our super fans, you'll know the reference. 2021, she did an episode of Curb. Curb Your Enthusiasm, James. I know you're a resident Curb expert. Anything to note from her episode? Yeah, she's in one episode, and it's very funny in that she's introduced as herself. She's playing herself, and she's <laughs> on her third date with Larry. And it's like, oh, so how are things going with Lucy Liu? It's like, oh, they're going really well. We're about to have our third date. And for their third date, they go to a friend's house, and it's just like a dinner party. And he has... In consecutive moments, he spills a glass of wine on the couch and then walks into a glass door that he thought was open. <laughs> and the rest of the episode is about how, like, that really turned off Lucy Liu and she thinks he's having, like, senior moments and, like, she can't date him anymore because she's like, I thought you were a little bit more, like, lucid than you are. He's like, I am lucid. It's like, I made a mistake. Like, I, that's not what happened. And all his friends are like, once you run into a door, like, a woman's not going to sleep with you. It's like, it's over. Like she, she's going she's to break up with you. <laughs> Screwed the pooch on that one. eh? lost Lucy Lou. Yeah. You know, these doors and the transparency really kill you. I bet she was terrific in this. Oh yeah. It's, it's so funny because it's so subtle. Like you just see like the slight look of like concern and disgust on her face when he like face plants, <laughs> he's driving her home and he's like, do you mind if I come in? She's like, you've had a, a rough day. Why don't you just go home and relax why don't you text me when you get home so I know you got home safe? <laughs> <laughs> Your guy. That's pretty good. 2022, she was Callisto Mall in Strange World, an animated picture. It's pretty solid. I watched it. I don't really remember her character in it, but I remember liking the movie. All right. Last review is from Case, and it is Largest Audience Gap, and it is Shazam! Fury of the Gods. There's one thing I enjoy doing. It's making Case or Rigby review super, superhero films. So it's a really good time. Yeah, it's certainly not my strength, but that being said, I couldn't really tell you what my strength would be, so I guess we'll just lean into anything I'm given. I'll just do my best at. But Shazam! Fury of the Gods is a 2023 superhero movie that is a sequel to Shazam! No spoilers, I don't think. I hope not, at least. But this movie picks up four years after the original film Shazam! The main character, Billy Batson, is struggling being able to balance his life as a teenager and his adult superhero persona. When our villains, uh, Hespera, Calypso, and Atlas, our girl Lucy Liu plays Calypso. Helen Mirren is playing Hespera. Basically, the movie is three, the three sisters... Highlighted it, like I said, with Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu basically take control because they get, oh, from our boy, Jaiman Hinsu, they, they get him to, to rebuild and, and re get, get the magical staff going again. And then it's just them basically taking the world over and forcing the superheroes who the, the uh, goddesses are trying to take the powers from this family of now superheroes. What I enjoyed about this movie is I think there's a good blend of humor, action, and some of the more like at this point they're they're pretty predictable elements of 
of successful superhero movies of just like witty dialogue, fast action scenes. And for me, the thing that helps me out the most is just kick-ass music. And this movie really is kind of just putting all that together. I enjoyed this movie. I didn't see the first one, so I don't really know. I don't have the backstory on it. But in terms of the like the dialogue, and, and I enjoyed the superhero, and he was just very awkward. And he, he portrayed a teenager and an adult pretty well. But as it relates to Lucy Liu, a lot of reviews that I saw were really split because she's got kind of a um, kind of a campy performance that some people loved and some people didn't. Now, it's Lucy Liu, so I loved it, and I was down for that. So I was like, all right, whatever, she's good. But what I liked about her is that kind of what we saw in Kill Bill, I think just the way she carries herself and the way she can deliver lines creates a really good villain. I think the downside of this is... Her character's arc was not as well-developed as Helen Mirren's. So in the end, I think even though Lucy Liu carries the villain side of this movie, I think Helen Mirren is going to get the spotlight from the villain side. I didn't love that for this, but overall, it was the movie was fine to watch, and I thought Lucy Liu was really good in it. That's it. Uh, is that a positive review of a superhero film from Craig Case? Of all movies, too. Oh, my. Of all the times I've been negative, and very few have I really been negative, but I, I enjoyed it. It was, it was an easy watch for sure. What, pray tell, is the reason for this premature exodus? <laughs> the stuff that always worked with me in Shazam is uh, like the Zachary Levi stuff and the family stuff. That always, that always affected me. Mm-hmm. And when it's grounded in those things, it kind of works. The movie's just fine, though. It's one of those where, like, it to watch it and not have seen Shazam, I think, is wild case. That is wild. Because <laughs> Shazam is good. <laughs> but, you know, it's one of those, oh, I saw Shazam. I'll watch Shazam. I'll watch Fury of the Gods. And then I'll forget it. It's just interesting to me, her taking on a villain role in a superhero film in 2023. I think that's interesting. I think it's a, it's a different choice from her, role-wise. Yeah, she kicked ass. I imagine they dropped the bag. Oh, yeah. Oh, I bet. Yes. To get her and Helen Mirren? Correct. The last few things we'll note, Kung Fu Panda 4 just came out, and then Presence, that film that premiered at Sundance, um, that hopefully people get a chance to see her shortly. All right, top performances case, what do we got? All right, so I have a list from Screen Rant of Lucy Liu's best roles ranked. Now, this list actually is her characters. So I will give you bonus points if you can say the movie and the character's name. So this is ranked 1 through 10, movie and TVs. Two of them we didn't talk about. Two of them we briefly mentioned. I think the one of the roles we probably didn't talk about that is on there is Detachment as Dr. Doris Parker. Detachment, Dr. Doris Parker, is number five. Got to be Oren Ishii from Kill Bill. Oren Ishii from Kill Bill Volume 1 is number one. There you go. Mm. And you get double points. Thank you, thank you. Kung Fu Panda, Viper. Viper from Kung Fu Panda is number three. I got to put Kirsten in there somewhere. Kirsten from Set It Up is not on the list. Ah, what a kick the balls. Free Yeah, I mean. Elementary Dr. Joan Watson. Definitely got to be on there. 
Dr. Joan Watson from Elementary is number two. Lin Wu, Allie McBeal. Ling Wu, Allie McBeal is number four. We've peppered the top five. We have one through five done. Alex Monday, Charlie's Angels. Alex from Charlie's Angels is number 10. Ooh. You guys are crushing this list, by the way. All right, Tinkerbell, Silver Mist. It's good. It's not on there. Chicago. Chicago is number six, Kitty Baxter. Damn. Queen, when she plays the queen in the future world, which is about the future of the world. Queen, future world, uh, what's his face with yellow teeth is not on the list. That's Warlord. Who's the Warlord? Oh, I'm sorry, Warlord. <laughs> I think that movie was directed by the director. Yeah, correct. All right, give me, uh, give me Lucky Number Slevin, Lindsay. Lindsay from Lucky Number Slevin is my number nine. Is nine on the list. Oh, what a what a kick to the balls. We have number seven and number eight left. We briefly mentioned number seven, and we didn't even touch number eight. So I'll give you a couple shots at number seven, and then I'll tell you what number eight is. Shanghai Noon. Princess Pepe. Princess Pepe. Shanghai Noon is not on the list. Wow. Okay. Gina and Codename the Cleaner. We briefly mentioned that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Gina? Please, no. You, you Codename the Cleaner? <laughs> Is not on the list. (laughs) Please think. All right, Domino. Taryn. Domino is not on the list. It's obviously play it to the bone where she was also very uh, tasteful and uh, subtle in her performance in that movie as well. Whatever her character is in play it to the bone with arguably the weirdest performances ever by Woody Harrelson, which says a lot, is not on the (laughs) list. The hint I will give you on the one we chatted about briefly, it is rate, it was rated very, very highly. Oh. Hmm. And Kyle, you said you wish you would have watched this. Oh. Oh. Uh, it's uh, Princess Kagawa. Oh, tale, the Tale of the Princess yeah. Kagaya, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Lady Sagami, The Tale of Princess Kagaya is number seven. That makes sense. The one that we did not say, and it is shocking because Kyle normally brings this up, and I apologize if I missed it, but her performance as Madame Wu on The Simpsons is number eight. Oh, man, I'm totally missing <laughs> little little one episode appearance, huh? Madame Wu is one such character that appears in the legendary satirical sitcom as an officer at the child adoption center from where Selma Bouvet. One of the tobacco-addicted cynical twins is planning on adopting a child. Choice. Made the list. I would have thought the underwater world. Palm. But nope. Pick better lists, my friend. That's what I'll say. (laughs) Let's get into the Munsonmeter. What we do, we rate every actor on a scale of 0 to 100. Based on a variety of factors, it could include longevity, project choice, pop culture impact, their acting range, awards, other talents, personal life, box office chops, uh, comedic, you know, timing, uh, and anything that matters to us as Munson's. Uh, so we'll start this time with Case. This particular episode, I started with a, a clean slate. And as we talked about stuff, I built my score. I normally come in with a strong score and I let it move up and down as we talk about it. And this one, I just said, you know what, let me see how we're we'll go. 
And what has struck me during this particular episode is Lucy Liu is a pioneer. And she didn't really have a career for her or her people, like Corey has talked about a bunch, to follow. It's really easy for action stars to go, hey, let's just do what Bruce Willis did. He did this, then he did this, okay, right? Lucy Liu didn't have that, that roadmap. And here's why I'm super impressed by it. We talked about two significant TV shows, and I usually don't give a shit about TV shows, but we talked about two significant ones. We talked about Allie McBeal, where she had a industry-changing role, and then we ended with Elementary, where she simply was the most important character in the TV show. And the amount of time in between there that she had to bust her ass and develop the roadmap proves talent, resilience. Couldn't be more impressed with her. I think she may miss some like emotional acting range that some of the other performers we look at have naturally. But I also don't think that's the type of roles that she needs to be cast in. I think I think she's an incredibly powerful female character. I think she's an incredibly powerful character, period. What I've seen from her in her career and what I've heard you guys talk about tonight is just even more impressive than I anticipated being impressed tonight. So with that, I'm going to start us off with an 83. Go. All right, James. So for me, my experience was different. I think... In watching some of these movies, I realized that the two things, the first thing that comes to became obvious to me is that I kind of just wanted more from her career than I think I ended up getting where it's, you see the talent and you see it not come to fruition. I didn't see as much range as I wanted. I didn't see as much, you know, the leading woman in a dramatic role. I obviously on TV, that's different, but in the film side. And I was shocked. And I think the reason I was shocked is because of number two. Her pop culture, in fact, is like insane. And going back and realizing that she's not in that many movies and the movies that she is in, some of them are terrible. Some of them are just like tiny roles. And some of them are blockbusters, but it's not as many as I remembered for some reason. Yeah. I think she greatly outkicked her coverage when it came to pop culture impact. And Yep. That is uh, something that I think is impressive and you could hang your hat on. That's, that's a movie star quality that not everyone has. And I think it says a lot for someone who hasn't been in that many incredibly successful movies or had those roles that have garnered kind of award and support. And so I was more so shocked by how little I enjoyed watching a lot of these movies. But... Afterwards, I was impressed by the, the pop culture impact and the star power that she has, which I think carried a lot of her score for me, which is a 72. To your pop culture point, in August of 2000 through December of 2000, she hit number one spot on IMDb. She was on Saturday Night Live, Ally McBeal, Charlie's Angels, Mad TV, and Letterman Show, just to name a few. She planted such a great, like, impact on so many people that we still carry that with us. That's really cool. Corey, our guest Munson. This was hard because to Case's point, there is no pathway for her. And it is very obvious that her team did not have a pathway for her. 
they did not have a trajectory for her. They did not have a plan for her. They did not have a strategy for her. And if they did, they were willing to throw it away for salary. And we don't know why that was. It is a sign that there is uh, only so far you can go so quickly when there is no road for you. Mm -hmm. If you think about her being next to Anna Mae Wong on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, it is that is a frankly very, very kind of disturbing, mm -hmm. a sure sign of multiple missed opportunities for Asian actresses in the States. That being said, I think she's done the most with what she can have. And at a certain point, you you just want to keep working. And I think that's her goal, right, is to just keep working. I do not think the story is over for her. I think she could make an incredible, like, I don't just want to connect her with Asian actresses, but like Michelle Yao has had a career in the later part of her life. She's done different things. I think Ming-Na Wen is somebody that I love a lot that's, um, that hasn't broken fully yet. It's ironic that Ming-Na Wen and Le Lucy Liu have done things together. I'm going to give that, all that being said, I'm I'm going to rank her a 61. And the only reason why is because I think there's more for her to do. And we have not seen everything she can do yet. And so I'm going to rank her a conservative 61. All right. Aubrey. I agree with a lot of what's been said so far, especially with like her path and her carving out a lane for a lot of actresses to come behind her and how great that is for her to be able to do that. James is dead on with the pop culture impact. Lucy Liu is a person that like, I just feel like I'm super familiar with her. Mm -hmm. She's just someone that I'm like, you know, I saw more movies of her than I thought I saw. But when I, when the name came up, it was just like, Oh yeah, Lucy Liu. Like I know exactly who that is. <laughs> And that I, that matters, man. Like it's just it's been a long time. She's been around and doing this for a, a pretty long time, and she her name still kind of holds a little bit of weight with our generation of people that have have seen Charlie's Angels and stuff like that. My experience, though, in going back through these was a bit rough because I also never really analyzed her that way. She was just a big time figure to me, so I kind of always just accepted her as that. And so when I'm really watching her as a performer i was a little disappointed she's great in kill bill and kill bill's a great movie but i didn't find a ton of other performances that i looked at and i was like she was great in this there was more where i was just like i kind of wish i got a little bit more from her and she also has some just god-awful choices <laughs> that could be circumstances or it could be, you know, Hollywood sucking, or it could be a bad agent, or it could be bad progress project choice from her. It could be any one of those factors. But when we're looking at it, it's there. And I think one of the things for me, I like nuanced actors. I like subtle actors. I like actors who have really expressive eyes and faces. And Lucy Liu has these big, beautiful eyes. And more often than not, when I'm watching her perform, I just don't see a ton there. Mm -hmm. There's just not much there that's driving any emotion. And so I think she has great presence. I think she's a powerful performer and woman when she stands up there and is given really great things to do. But I didn't see a ton of that. So I land at about a 63. Lucy Liu is the kind of person that made me really enjoy this format because it's somebody, yeah, I like watching this stuff, but I also like comparing it and looking at trying to 
you know, put ourselves in their shoes and figure out like why they make the choices they make. And that's why I love having Corey here because she sees things with a particular perspective that I don't always look at it with. Yeah. And so like Buscemi was that thing for Case to be like, these are the types of actors to give a spotlight to. Lucy Liu, I think, is someone to kind of peel back the layers and go, let's learn a little bit more about this person as a human and as a performer. It's hard to judge somebody who entered into a world that wasn't built for them and I don't think still is built for them, ultimately. So it's almost like you're holding them up to an unfair pedestal. And I think what's going to kill her in my score are some of the things, you know, awards. There's really nothing there. I mean, she's nominated for a couple... TV show roles, some of the off the screen stuff, and she's done the directing, and you know she's blazed the trail and a legacy. And I'm I'm interested. Aubrey's going to talk in her second about what she's got coming. She's got a ton of projects, so like the best could still be yet to come with her. And you know we'll be like, damn, we wish we would have covered her three or four years later because holy shit, she put out these incredible Oscar winning films or something. I don't know, but seeing her go to Sundance and do an indie film at Sundance gives me some promise that maybe she's trying some different stuff now. Their son's getting a little bit older. And she's not so much worried about the TV paychecks and she can just like dig her hands into something. So even a superhero film tells me she's trying some new stuff. So I'm interested truly to see what happens. Unfortunately, I'm, I can only give her a 68 based on what I've seen in her. She's not like a great dramatic actress from what I've seen so far, but I don't think that score is terrible. So with that, that's going to give Lucy Liu a... 69.4, which puts her in 57th place. What was the the box office score was 56, wasn't it? On a 96? 56. It always ends up like that. It's wild. <laughs> One off. One off. That's crazy. And she's sandwiched between Alison Brie and Alicia Vikander right there in that sweet spot. There you go. She's up there with her top international box office person. <laughs> there you go. It all comes together, doesn't it, gang? That's right. All right, Aubrey, what has she got coming? And there's a lot. She's got a lot. There's nine projects. And oh, wow. I don't know if one of those includes presence, but I feel like presence should be here because it did. Because that's something that most people won't get to see until later this year, which I would be excited to see. I'm only going to go over two. Yeah. Because a lot of these don't have a lot of like plot or anybody attached to them. She's got a couple of animated things, but she has two things. One is called A Man in Full, which is a TV miniseries that co-stars Jeff Daniels. It follows an Atlanta real estate mogul as he faces sudden bankruptcy and tries to defend his empire from those attempting to capitalize from his fall from grace. I'm in on that, so I'm really looking forward to that. Did you see who's directing A Man in Full? Oh, yes. I meant to bring this point up, and I forgot. Hell yeah. I'm in on that, too. She's going to be great. (laughs) Who is it? Regina King. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, let's go. Uh-huh. Tom Wolf wrote the novel, which is very popular and excellent. Oh, okay. Then there's another movie. It comes out later this year. It's already done. It's from the director of the two Jumanji movies and a writer of almost every Fast and Furious movie. It has Dwayne Johnson, Chris Evans, Kieran Shipka, J.K. Simmons, who plays Santa Claus, Bonnie Hunt, who's Mrs. Claus, Lucy Liu, Mary Elizabeth Ellis, Nick Kroll, and there's no plot for Red One. <laughs> this is how that James Franco movie gets made. It's just like <laughs> they all get drunk at a party and they're like, wouldn't it be cool if we just hung out for six months and made a movie? Oh, that's so funny. I don't know what's going on here, but those are two very different projects. So I'm interested 
and what's going on here in this action adventure comedy mystery, as IMDb has put it. Mm. Horror, thriller, sci-fi. Nine projects is exciting. I have a prediction on what Red One is. If you look at the stills, Red One looks like, remember Violent Night Mm -hmm. from two years ago with David Harbour? Love Violent Night. Oh, yeah. Like a violent Santa Claus film. I think Red One is an action film with Santa Claus as the backdrop. I'm in. I'll watch it. It's probably going to be on Netflix, given The Rock and Chris Evans. So. Uh-huh. I hope Dwayne Johnson's playing an elf. He's playing someone named Callum Drift. <laughs> it's the mercenary sent in by Santa. Pick out somebody. Nine rolls, though. That's good. Our next episode's going to hit on Leap Day, February 29th of 2024. We've got John Rigby coming back. He was with, with us for Allison Janney, William Hurt, Laura Linney, and Matt Dillon. And the wheel selected one of these five. He chose to join us for one of these five. We have Hugh Grant, Deborah Winger, Bill Hader, John Krasinski, or Daniel Kaluuya. Quick thoughts on this one. Who the hell is Daniel Kaluuya? If you saw him, you'd recognize him. You need to get real familiar with him. He was in uh, Get Out and Nope. Pretty. Yeah, he's, he's great in Widows. He also directed a Netflix movie called The Kitchen, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Judas and the Black Messiah. Mm-hmm. He's a pretty incredible young actor. You'll you'll love him. And then when you learn how like heavy his British accent is, it throws me off. Yeah, it fucking shocks me every time. Was he the main character in Nope? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. the brother. Oh, like him? No, he's great. He has a really interesting personal life. To be honest, I don't want to cover him. Very, very interesting person. Because he's too young. I think I would prefer to wait. I want to wait on Daniel, but it would be fun. We watch some great movies. Yeah, and I'm going to go on a limb. John Rigby did not pick him with his affinity yeah. for 80s and 90s yeah. cinema. It's, this has like <laughs> Hugh Grant written all over it. Or Deborah Winger. I do not know who Deborah Winger is, to be quite honest. Uh, there's a reason for that. <laughs> she was huge in the 80s, which is why I think that's, that's my vote for John Rigby. Deborah Winger. In terms of endearment, I think it's their big movie. She's a very tough woman who had to fight a lot and uh-huh. never got over that never got over feeling oppressed by the system that frankly probably treated her like garbage yep to be honest typing into google deborah winger and one of the first articles is why she quit hollywood yeah et an officer and a gentleman moderately successful and accomplished like it's not like she was a nobody she was a household name yeah the oscars She's in Forget Paris? And 49 credits, Case. Only 49. Ooh. I mean, for me, the choice would be Bill Hader, only so we could have a lengthy, and maybe the entire podcast, discussion of Barry. Yep. Yeah, I love Barry. Barry's so fucking funny. Barry? Barry? We just watch SNL, watch him break character in SNL for the whole, just talk about it the whole time. <laughs> Barry's got, like, two of my favorite side characters of any HBO show with, uh, no ho hey. Hank and Anthony, uh, Anthony Carrington. <laughs> yep. Yeah, Anthony Carrington and uh Fonzie. Winkler's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> he's unbelievable. It's such a great show. I think it's Steven Root in that show too. You can even throw in Steven Root. Yeah. Yeah. Corey, if you had to pick one, who would you pick? I think Hater would make a great episode. And it, and not for I love Barry, but I think anytime you can talk about a comedian who is ready. To do, I mean, the ske- is it the Skeleton Twins? Yeah, with, with Kristen, Kristen Wiig. Wiig. Yeah. 
That movie is genius. It is brilliant. It is, and it's him, right? He's in that Mm -hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Yep. I Super feel bad. Like he's well. on the edge. Yes. I think he's on the edge. He's like an Adam Sandler to me, where he just has such a joy for like doing funky things. But if you want to put him in something difficult, he knocks it out of the park and is interesting. And he's he's a I love I love him. I think he's brilliant. And he started out as an editor. I mean he grew up he grew his own career. Wow. All right. John Rigby, any final guesses for who he's picking? Deborah Hugh Grant. Deborah Hugh Grant. Okay. Well, we'll see. He doesn't decide. I don't decide. You know, contrary to whatever Aubrey says, uh, Will decides and we'll see what happens. Corey, you're wonderful as always. You bring such light and joy to our episodes. Yes. Thanks, guys. The red carpet moment. This is where you get to any wise words or any plugs for anything you're working on you want people to know about? I have been on, I've been cheating on you guys. What? I was on another podcast. It's a completely different style. And I spent around two hours talking about beauty pageant culture. (laughs) So if you want to catch me on another podcast, you can check out the Miss USA episode on a podcast called Be There in Five. And my friend Kate Kennedy is the host of that podcast. Right. And it's completely different than this, but it's super fun. If you're a woman who listens to this podcast, it's it's a podcast targeted to you. Women who like to talk about millennial pop culture and the intersections of our culture and how we were raised as girls in America. It's a, it's I love that. A, it's great for all the reasons you guys are great. You're great hosts. I always have fun and I love talking about smart things with smart people. So thanks for letting me stop by every now and then. Oh, thank you for coming. We love having you on. Yeah, you're one of the best. I don't think that podcast is going to compete with our content anytime soon. So I think we're all right if you continue cheating on us with them. Totally different genres. All right. Well, as we wrap up, you can catch us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can catch us on Instagram, Munson's at the Movies. You can email us, Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Lucy Liu? The price you pay for bringing up either my Chinese or American heritage as a negative is I collect your fucking head. Now, if any of you sons of bitches got anything else to say, now's the fucking time! Munson's out. All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we? Hubba, hubba, hubba.